Happy Friday, everyone. Today is February 15th, and this is episode 45 of Get Your Tech On, our show on all things Doxis. I'm Brady Volpe, founder of Nimble This and the Volpe Firm. With us today are three amazing guests, John Downey, CMTS technical leader at Cisco, Asaf Matatayu, vice president in solutions and product management at Cable Edge Business at Harmonic, and Tal Laufer. Director of Product Line Management of Eris. Today's topic is a follow-on of last year's popular RFI and DAA show. Uh, Asaf and Tal are each going to cover a, a nice... So the great thing about this, they're going to co- cover a nice overview, not just of the sort of the technical of, you know, RFI and how it could technically feasibly work in a field, but it's going to be more of a hey, RFI is actually live, and it's out there, and we're going to cover those things, and John and I are going to go over and dive into nuts and bolts with Tall and Laufer. So this is a fantastic panel. Super, super excited about this show. So I want to say hi to Tall and and, uh, welcome her back. Tall, so good to have you back with us. Thanks, Tall. How are you, Ben? Good. How are you guys? Doing great. Good to see you. Yeah, Um, you too. Asaf, so good to have you back. How have you been? Very well. Thanks. Thanks for having me back. Good to have you back. And John, so good to see you as a as a stateful <laughs> stateful product of our show. <laughs> it's always great to be on. Thanks, man. Thanks. So before we get started, I do have just a couple of things that I saw interesting in the news from my standpoint. We have uh, an announcement from Google Fiber that they are they're actually going and pulling out from Louisville. Uh, or, um, so they're leaving Louisville. Louisville, I think this is kind of interesting. There's some, some interesting news in this. Uh, Google Fiber launched in Louisville in 2017, but you know, they say very, various obstacles have caused issues for them. One of the ones that I heard about was they were, they were burying their fiber uh, just a few inches under the ground. And so, you know, they're, they're kind of not living up to the standards that they were talking about. I think this kind of illustrates that cable is a bit more difficult than, than, you know, what people really understand it to be. And so they've, they've had failed attempts and they're pulling out. So this, I think, is just a, an interesting topic. It's good for us as an inter- industry, you know, people who, are, who really understand cable well. And... Uh, uh, don't know if any of you have any comments on this or not, or uh, thoughts on this, but for me, I think it's an interesting con- uh, topic just to discuss that it, when you're trying to enter into the, the, the indus- industry, it's not that easy. So any quick thoughts or should I move on? Okay, I'll move on. Uh, yeah. Another. <laughs> hey, I always have comments. <laughs> okay, John, go, go ahead. You're welcome. It kind of reminds me back in the day when AT&T got into it, you know, but with their unions and their costs, and uh, it was a lot more difficult than they thought, right? Uh, and then Comcast came back around, you know, it was TCI to AT&T to whoever. Um, but I think Google is achieving exactly what they intended to do, and that was force our hand, force everyone to upgrade to faster speeds so people could have a higher, bigger pipe to use their services. You know, Google is not a service provider. I doubt that they ever wanted to be. Yeah, and I so think a lot of people... Like how serious they were. A lot of people said that about Google to begin with. That, you know, what is their objective? And they were pushing a lot of speed. They were getting in just kind of a couple of niche industries or niche, niche markets. Uh, Atlanta was one of the niche markets that they're in. And they've also said they're not expanding any further in Atlanta. I think they're pulling out of the couple places that they were in Atlanta. But they did put pressure on all the operators that were in the markets that they were in. So, hey, if they're pulling out at this point of those markets, fine. But the operators that were in around where Google Fiber was definitely had to up their game. Yeah. And I got one more comment. Is it, is it Louisville? Louisville or Louisville? Which one are you talking about? <laughs> it's Kentucky. Kentucky. Well, then, then it's Louisville. You got to say it with a mouthful of marbles. <laughs> yeah. Get it right. Uh, <laughs> I, I'll take I'll take your word on that one, John. <laughs> so, any other any other thoughts or comments on that? We good on that one? Because I've got another one I want to queue up, and this one, John, is for you, the man with the worst internet connection in the world. 
This one is coming to us uh, from uh, MIT Technology Review. This is why the future of satellite internet might be decided in rural Alaska. And, and this is just talking about how advances in satellite are, are coming out, coming along that um, 11 months out of the year, you can, you can catch Christine O'Connor working at the Alaska Telecom Associated in Alaska. And they're really just focusing on, you know, People in rural areas, <clears throat> John, who have very little internet connection, uh, they're, they're really looking at this opportunity to gain satellite uh, connectivity because they don't have access to other, other internet connectivity. Um, I also know that um, uh, the, uh, Elon Musk has a huge investment at having very low Earth 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 <laughs> low satellites uh, moving around the world uh, to deliver... Um, Internet to people. Leo? Yeah, yes, Leo? thank you, thank you, thank you. And so these are uh, great opportunities. I think the interesting thing will be how these, you know, putting satellites in low Earth orbit, thank you, Leo, uh, will compete with us as an industry. I, I think it's going to be a really interesting thing to see moving forward, something to be definitely worth monitoring uh, because it, it can be really a game changer for us as an industry. So... That is something I see as, you know, very exciting technology-wise, but could be a total game-changer for us. Uh, from your standpoint, John, it could be awesome for you because you won't be using dial-up and, and your challenges that you have on the Internet. But, you know, I think it's really focused for the rural, rural America, rural, country, rural areas throughout the world. So the big cities will still have fiber as deep as possible getting deeper, um, but... You know, wouldn't you still have problems in urban areas with buildings and line, not line of sight, but, uh, you know, you have a lot of buildings that even screw up your GPS when you're trying to get maps to work when you're going through downtown New York. You know, so there are some hurdles there that they already have fiber. So I'm sure that announcement is probably not going to affect them in big cities. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think the masses are going to absolutely still require wired connectivity unless – you know, unless 5G fills that gap or there's some, you know, really amazing technology, but it's going to be very difficult to deliver gigabyte per second uh, data speeds over and, and do it really, really solidly with low latency and do that over a wired connection. I, we were talking just before the show, uh, Soph is, you know, dealing even in his own home with good Wi-Fi connection is having breakups and stuff. And we see that all the time. That's why a wired connection is really, really hard to beat at any time. So, uh, satellites are great, wireless connections are great, but they break up over time. Yeah, that's great things, awesome technology, but wired is still hard to beat, and that's why we're having this topic today on RFI and DAA. But, I mean, as consumers, this is great for all of us, right? I mean, having choices that uh, keeps driving the industry forward and coming up with better ways of doing things, even satellite, I mean, I, I suspect, you know, they're probably looking into their latency issues and trying to find new either technology or new protocols to get around it. Uh, and then that can transfer into something that we might be able to exploit, right? Uh, even Dr. 3.1, you know, OFDMA, we took that from wireless and other uh, industries, other disciplines. Say, so, you know what? That actually works pretty well in their environment. So let's adapt it to our own. And so here we go with Dr. 3.1. Uh, and a new modulation scheme. So, you know, it, it's it's good for all of us. Yep, absolutely. So I, other, I, I want to add to that. I mean, I think the other challenges people have, even if you have an incredibly um, high-speed connection to your home, which I'm confident I do, um, <laughs> is uh, the Wi-Fi network inside the home. So you can have all these great, uh, so whether it's satellite or, or wired or fiber to the home, within the home, People are, are not going to connect uh, through their, you know, all the different various devices they have uh, over a wire connection within the home or within the business. Everything is, is wireless. And then you got all these Wi-Fi signals that are uh, potentially not strong enough or interfering with each other. And, and I, I wonder, I don't have any statistics, how many people are calling up their cable or service providers uh, complaining about, um, uh, you know, lack of speed or issues uh, when it's uh, potentially driven by their Wi-Fi network. I, I know for me personally, um, I've tried to upgrade my Wi-Fi network in the home recently. Again, the wired connection is amazing, but within the home, it's always a challenge um, 
to get it right in all corners of the home and with all the devices trying to connect. Uh, should I use extenders? Should I use um, a mesh network? Uh, probably not a topic for this, uh, for this session, but I don't think that the, the solution ends at, at the pipe into the home, but there's a, or to the business. It's, it's within the home and within the business as well. Yep. Yeah. I mean, the number I've heard is like 60% of a lot of CSR, TSR calls are related to just Wi-Fi issues. It was never the DOCSIS network to begin with. So I think it's a, you're right. It's not, it's a good topic. We could spend another hour on that alone. So <laughs> very good topic. So, um, hey, with that being said, um, I would like to start and give some time now, uh, starting with Tal. Tal's going to give a presentation, um, well, parts of a presentation that she gave at Expo, and then Asaf will move on to you. I want to open up the opportunity for Tal to do that now. And again, I think the, the reason that these presentations are so important and, and RFI is so important, I had a really interesting conversation um, last week with, a, with an individual, go on name list, but he was, you know, kind of focused on the telecom industry because thought cable was going nowhere. And he said, you know, he was reading how RFI was, was just really changing the game for the cable industry because it's just giving us so much expanded reach. And so again, we, we've, we talked, I think about a year ago on this, and now I think we want to get in. A year ago is so much more theoretical. Now I think it's just so much more practical because we're getting into that. So with that, I'd like to uh, queue up Tal and give her the opportunity to go into her presentation. So Tal, with that, please enlighten us with what your findings are now at this point. <laughs> I, I will try, Brady. I'm not sure I'll be able to make it. But uh, wow, what a, what a year can make in terms of difference on where we talked about RemoteFi about a year ago and today, right? About a year ago, it was a lot of it was theoretical. There were almost no RemoteFi deployments out there in the world. Now we are starting to see some real deployments. We're starting to tackle some new questions, actual questions that come from the field and from actual customer experience. So this year has been critical to get you know, our, our, uh, our hands and feet wet as much as possible and be able to see that in action and be able to also resolve some issues in the field. So the presentation I have uh, for today, and I'm going to uh, start presenting here, um, it is taken, as, uh, as Brady mentioned, from, from the Cable Tech Expo um, event this uh, last year. And I'm going to show kind of a shortened version of it, right? Because uh, we don't have enough time. Um, I think you can see my screen okay. So the title of, the, of this uh, talk was uh, It's Alive, Getting to Successful Remote Fi Deployment, The Do's and Don'ts. And I had two very distinguished partners for this paper um, with me, uh, Jeroen Putti and uh, Ufe Kelsen. Um, Jeroen is from Aris and uh, Ufe was from Stofa, uh, which is the operator uh, with which we had this experience. So. I wanted to tell you today not much about why you, you know how RemoteFi works and all that. We've done this in the past. So today I'm going to focus on how did it work, right? What did we learn from initial deployment of RemoteFi? So this is kind of a timeline of the entire project, right? In um, a picture worth a thousand words. So we started it in October 16 or so. The deployment itself happened, started in March uh, 18, and uh, we're going on deployment, uh, you know, pretty fast. So we've got uh, quite, quite successful and substantial uh, deployment there. Um, it took a while, right? So if you remember, October 16, that was, you know, two and a half years ago, was more, you know, more than the beginning of the remote file spec. And there were, there was a spec back then, but it was not completely finalized. There were still some additions that were going out um, to, uh, to the uh, community. So remember that, that date we're going to talk about, about that start date. So quite in short, why did uh, that specific operator uh, decide to go to remote file? We talked a lot about the reasons to go to RemoteFi in previous webcasts, and, and I think these are, you know, kind of representing reasons on why did anybody would, you know, why would anybody want to go to RemoteFi, but specifically for that operator, the transition to digital fiber, the ability to send down um, digital uh, signals on the, um, on the optics, optics deployed out there, that was a big driver for them to be able to make the transmission, the transport layer more efficient. So sending more lambdas and sending higher 
throughput on those same cables was one of their drivers for moving to uh, remote phi. Another big driver was the head-end and the head-end space and power reduction that came from a remote phi architecture. So moving things out of the head-end and the hub down to the network actually clears out some space and you know helps with the power inside inside the head-end. It does move that down the line, right, closer to the um, closer to the subscriber and into the network, but it does free up this expensive um, you know centralized location. Um, other reasons uh, were DOCSIS and video services convergence. Uh, the customer wanted to converge their services as much as possible and be able to leverage the ability to send DOCSIS uh, and video signals from the same platform, right? This is debatable, right? There are some others that make other choices um, on this subject. They wanted to have a better path to virtualization and they wanted to get to some operational simplicity. And we're going to talk a little bit on how did that project really achieve, uh, really achieve those, um, those goals. Another goal here is a better SNR uh, at the end of the line. Being able to get to the customer with a higher signal to noise rate is one of, of course, a driver for every cable operator when they want to transmit more data and a greater quality down to the subscriber at the end. So just in quick, um, you know, quick overview, we, we did a lot of testing. It took, um, it took a while to bring up, you know, the, the environment. As I said, the, uh, the testing of the project really started when the remote phi spec was not completely uh, stabilized and closed. So we took, we took our time with some testing. You got some example here on uh, the architecture that we have set up in the lab in order to, to test the, um, the equipment. Uh, in the end, the actual deployment itself was very gradual. There was the first node that cut over was the one that took the most time, obviously. And then they grew it gradually to four nodes to, you know, many, many more after that. But that gradual deployment, that kind of um, very slow ramp up is something that really helped with solving problems, fixing them for the future and kind of really ramping up on the network resources, on the training for the team and on setting up the real uh, work processes that were required in order to be successful deploying this, uh, this project. So if we look at some of the results, right, and we don't have time enough to, to review all of the results here, but basically the uh, transition that that specific example was, was from an MCS, MCMTS type architecture to a remote file architecture. And we kind of counted very credibly the, um, the amount of devices that uh, were in the head end before the transition and after, and also counted the amount of watts that were used inside the head end before and after. So not going to go into too many details here, but you can see that the actual saving inside the head end and hub was quite significant, right? Over 3x saving um, on, the, on the space and over 2x saving on the power consumption inside the head end when transitioning to a remote phi, um, a remote phi architecture. And this is quite, you know, quite substantial, right? Not only do you save on space and power, but also the amount of devices that are being used is quite significantly reduced. And that number also helps with reducing the operational complexity of operating the network, right? So removing devices, removing, you know, converging more devices into one, all of that really did save actual dollars and money, but also really helped with simplifying the network operation. So the key benefits from the remote phi migration were, first of all, the space and power savings inside the head end and the reduction in the number of head ends required. This goes a long way into the future when you think about, you know, later on we will be able to move to virtualized um, hardware also inside those head ends and even save even more on the amount of space and power that is required within the head end. So just think about, and this is an interim step, there will be additional cost savings going forward. And this is, again, saving right now today on space and power, but in the future, it will also help with virtualization of the environment, consolidating more hubs and head-ends into one, you know, potential bigger data center that can be used on the same off-the-shelf uh, servers and so, and be more converged in terms of service convergence and also be orchestrated in, as a unified um, set of uh, elements.
Another benefit from the remote file deployment was the improved operational simplicity. The amount of devices that had to be eventually configured and managed was reduced quite significantly when we talk about the remote file because now we had to talk to the Mac core and that all that configuration trickled down to the remote file devices. Now, you must think to yourself, all right, we have so many more remote file devices in the field. How does she talk about improved operational simplicity, right? The point is that, yes, there are many more active devices out there in the field, but now we have better tools and better ways to manage them as one single unit. So it is, it is true that they are distributed and closer to the subscriber, but we have better tools and orchestration and automation mechanisms to be able to manage them in a much easier way than previously those types of systems have been managed. So the reduction on the amount of devices and eventually also the automation and orchestration tools that we have introduced really helped with improving the operational simplicity. And testimonials from the customer said that, oh, wow, it's, it's, it takes us a few minutes to install a new, a new node, a new service group now, something that has taken us you know, many hours in the past. Another benefit is the, uh, the fact that we have moved to a remote file architecture helped facilitate an upgrade to the Doxis supporting network. And the Doxis supporting network are actually the fibers that are deployed out there in the field. So um, customers may take the advantage of moving to remote file to also upgrade some of those uh, fibers that are the infrastructure of their network and also improve some of the routing capabilities to be able to send those, di those digital um, signals across all those fibers in their network. So normally a remote file project would also trigger some other improvements to other relevant systems that are supporting the DOCSIS network. So that can, that can refer to infrastructural items, but it can also refer to tools and back office systems that can help manage the network more effectively. And in the end, one of the key benefits we got is better signal to noise ratio in the upstream. And that was an interesting result of this um, kind of test case because we have measured the before and after state of uh, the, of the single, sing, signal to noise ratio. And what we've seen is that there was a quite significant improvement on the upstream noise ratio. But on the downstream direction, there was no, not a clear improvement. It was kind of averaged um, the same. The reason for that, and this is a very interesting um, result because a lot of the reasons for which customers are doing remote file is to improve also the downstream signal to noise ratio, right? So the reason we didn't see a lot of improvements, um, we believe is first of all, because we've also changed the frequency span in which the downstream signals were deployed. We moved those up the chain a little bit, up to, sorry, up the, up the frequency um, spectrum and um, in the higher speak in the, in the higher spectrum, there were more challenges there. So eventually the noise levels kind of remained the same, even with the remote file. And another potential reason is that our measurement of that signal to noise ratio was coming from the cable modems. We didn't really actually change those cables inside the home. And in the last, I guess, you know, 100, you know, few uh, yards or, or meters up to the home, right? So these cables remain the same. They could potentially introduce some noise levels that could interfere with this transmission as well. So these are potential reasons why we've only seen the improvement on the upstream, although we are pretty sure that, you know, we need some more wider measurement case to be able to, to really determine um, the results on that. Yeah. Uh, I don't, I know I had seen a slide at, uh, from your expo presentation that has shown the improvements between upstream, downstream, before and after. Did you mm -hmm. have a slide in your presentation for this or not? I did, yeah. I, I, I tried to cut down the slides because we didn't have enough time, but I can unhide it for a second. Because I think that slide that is one. such an, yeah, that is such an amazing slide. Okay, yeah, let's do that. Um, one second. Yeah. All right. I, okay, I tried to be brief, Brady. Remember that. Sorry, I just I love this slide no, so much. No, my behalf. <laughs> <laughs> I should have guessed. So, so for, right. for it, can you describe this for people who will be listening to this on the podcast-only version? Sure, yeah. So 
so this is quite uh, chaotic, right? So it's not a very clear picture. Um, but our measurement showed that on the upstream direction, we have seen a 2.5 average improvement in the upstream, um, uh, 2.5 dB average upstream uh, increase, right? So where the max value can be up to 8.2 dB of improvement, which is quite significant, significant improvement, right? So an average 2.5 dB improvement on the upstream. On the downstream, we remained pretty much the same. The downstream uh, SNR did not really uh, improve uh, by much. And I have a couple of diagrams here that show the noise levels as they are measured from cable modems within the, uh, sorry, on the downstream from the cable modems and the upstream from the um, head and devices or from the nodes. And we, we have that measurement here and it's kind of, you know, clear to see that on the upstream, we have a very nice diagram of moving to the right, to the you know, to higher levels of, of SNR. Whereas on the downstream direction, you see it a little bit more dispersed, and we don't see this quite significant, you know, this clear picture that we see on the upstream. And again, we really do believe that this comes from the end of the line kind of interferences that we are all struggling with, right? I know, Brady, you are specifically focused on, on helping with that. And I know that uh, Asaf and, and John must have, you know, diff you know, same thoughts as well. So these are interesting results and more results are due really to understand how much are we really improving the SNR in both upstream and downstream in the network for remote FI. Can I ask a question on this? Yeah, I mean, if we already dove, I mean, it's an interesting conclusion and, and uh, uh, or results. And one of the things that come to my mind is typically when you go fiber deep and you go remote uh, with DAA specifically with remote FI is you have smaller service groups. And I'm wondering in the upstream with the smaller service groups, you just have less noise aggregation in the upstream because you have less modems generating that. Now I'm not a FI expert, but I'm wondering if that smaller service group size doesn't help out specifically on the upstream SNR improvement um, as kind of a, a side effect of that. Uh, that mm -hmm. fiber yeah, I, I, yeah, it definitely could. And it's, uh, you know, not to be ruled out. Um, I don't remember the size of, if the size of the service group has changed significantly on this example. I think it didn't because um, the measurements were done. Um, there were no splits in the middle, but definitely wow. this is a good point, right? But you would we definitely need to consider that as well when you reduce the size of the service group definitely there will be less in, less interferences i definitely agree with that yeah i mean the, the uh kind of the bottom line is going to digital fiber you get rid of the achilles heel which is the analog fiber there most rf plant hfc systems are are kind of hamstrung because of that analog fiber but if you're doing a node plus five then who's to say that five amps and cascade that aggregate downstream uh, noise figure becomes you know relevant for Cal for your situation was it a node plus zero node plus three this one was you know? a node yeah it was a node plus three example so. yeah so I mean maybe the the fiber was never the limiting factor on the downstream on the upstream I would definitely see a huge improvement because of the the uh, laser clipping effect of analog lasers and uh, the, the loading on the upstream. Um, SF, for your your inquiry about the service group being smaller, someone brought this up 20-some years ago when I was at Secor, and I'm like, wait a minute, that didn't make sense at all. They were, they were trying to add the noise figure of every cable modem. Remember, cable modems are bursty. Their noise figure does not add in. Only one transmits at a time. So regardless, if you go from one modem to 500 modems on the upstream, you don't add that. It's not 500 modems of noise figure added together. It's one at a time. Um, yeah, now, uh, as far as ingress, it's a different story. So I wasn't thinking about just the transmission of the modems. I was thinking about the noise from the home, the, the other things that aggregate right. from all the other noise that aggregates, not the modem noise aggregating, but the mm -hmm. service size aggregating up, uh, you know. I agree with you. The, the modems wouldn't aggregate their noise figures, but all the, the just the aggregation of a larger service group. Well, of course, of course, you have that variable all the time, right? Mm -hmm. you, yep. know, you don't know where it's coming from. But I, I would say, you know, Tal and her situation, maybe uh, the downstream didn't improve much because it wasn't fiber deep. It was still node plus three. Fiber deep to me is node plus one or node plus zero. 
Yep, noise can be interjected from every every point, right? Those amplifiers may be a little bit less optimal. The home cable can be less optimal. We can we can see interferences from, you know, could be anywhere. And we didn't really touch, you know, a lot of those last mile um, kind of uh, devices and uh, and passive. So everything, yeah, definitely everything can impact that. And, and, and I assume it didn't have an, an analog overlay, right? It was all nope. okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a big problem, too. People trying to do analog video overlay with remote fi, and then they take the noise from the analog fiber and combine it back in with the digital fiber, and mm -hmm. you know better than what you started off with. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. This example was converged with not just residential fi services, but also the business services and other, other types of services they have on the network. So another point I want to bring up with that, though, is, is the physical. This is sort of what I harp on is the physical layer, layer one, is still relevant, even though we're doing digital fiber and it's very uh, forgiving than analog. Uh, there's still physical aspects of it that must be, you know, ma maintained. And mm -hmm. one of them is if I go DWDM, you have to understand what the ITU grid means. Mm -hmm. You can't just take an SFP uh, for ITU 22 and the receiver is at ITU 23, different wavelengths. Because remember, DWDM is very specific for the wavelength it's using very mm -hmm. tight constraints. So I've seen people mix and match the wrong uh, transmit receiver pairs. Yeah. Okay. And we do have a question from uh, uh, Simon, and he said that uh, the downstream change frequencies um, on your slides that, that you were showing, Tall, from 722 and 906 megahertz. So he was, he was asking if, this, if uh, some of the spread could have been from LTE interference. Definitely. Um, and, and so you know, maybe that helped uh, on some of the numbers yeah. we saw. We, we think so. So the, the move of the signal, so we moved the downstream spectrum, um, the downstream signals from around 200 plus to 700 plus, right? You know, the upper layer definitely is most susceptible to LTE interferences and other types of, you know, these kind of noises. So for sure, it could be. We didn't really go through the effort of really characterizing that enough, but definitely this is a harder area to transmit in, and this may also limit our uh, improvements here. Yeah, and I also want to say thank you to Raymond for letting us know that the audio dropped out for a moment. That was an uh, accident on, our, on my part, and it's now resolved. And thank you for letting me know it was back up. Yeah, you, so, know, you know, another good point about going to higher frequency, you know, there's not, you know, Brady, you and I have worked at Secor Electronics, and we've specified and quantified <laughs> noise floor and tilt and preamp and postamp and amplifiers. And we know higher frequencies are more susceptible to CTB, CSO. But with a pure digital lineup, you have more CCIN, right? Composite, composite mm -hmm. area to ingress noise ratio. So who's to say that going to higher frequency, you're actually getting a higher noise floor in the form of intermodulation distortion, right? Yep. It's not, it's not going to be added white Gaussian noise, but it would be CCIN. Yep. Yeah, it could actually absolutely be that. Okay. That's very good. Tom, yeah. did we interrupt you enough? <laughs> no, it's all, it's all good. I was really trying to stick to my time frame, but uh, I, I love the discussion. It's really, it's really good. And you guys really hit the right points there. Um, all right, let's go to the challenges, right? So I talked a little bit about the benefits. Some of the challenges we've seen are um, came from the fact that we were early adopters, right? The remote effects, um, the, the remote fi uh, specsibility was not as good at the time, uh, meaning there were a few, um, I think IO7, IO8, whatever came after we started testing and some things actually changed on the way the remote FI implementation was kind of defined by Cable Lab. So we had some changes in the spec really during um, you know, the, the period in which we were starting to test. So this, this uh, didn't help. In addition, there were new elements of network planning, right? So when we talk about remote FI architecture, we introduced the SYN router, the Converged Interconnect Network, which is the network that aggregates all the traffic from the MAC core and distributes it to the remote fine nodes. Those routers that are the SYN network uh, need to be planned for, right, and need to make sure that you choose a device that is right for your 
purposes. There's a decision to be made whether you go layer two or layer three. And, um, and you need to plan your entire network architecture with, the, with these uh, new SYN switches um, and routers on, on the way. Another um, new element is timing architecture, timing distribution uh, architecture, meaning you have to be able to verify that timing and clock information reaches every, every end of the network, every remote find node. Um, in the in the end, and you have to make sure your network planning includes the the considerations for the timing information to to be to be sent and received um, kind of symmetrically, right, going forward and backward uh, and, and and returning, and also uh, making sure that you have enough acu you know accuracy in different points of the network where you have grandmaster clocks and you know, and slaves all over. So this is another new type of planning that was not done, you know, by operators before. And this took some ramp up of the knowledge and making sure that the, the, the right uh, plans are put in place. And the last challenge is the change in field measurement tools. The remote file introduction uh, moved things to digital, right? So a lot of uh, potential analog measurement tools that were used in the past were no longer available, would not work in the remote file architecture. So, you know, operators and, and, and us as well, we needed to make sure we know how to measure things in the field effectively. We know how to, to allow the operator to deploy effectively aligning upstream and downstream, for example, and detecting problems quickly. So these were challenges we've seen through the project, right? And we managed to mitigate them, solve them. Some of them took a little bit longer, but, but in the end, um, you know, these were all good challenges to have and we invested the time in solving those problems and I believe this, uh, this has been repaid, right? So moving to my last slide here, and uh, you know, for the successful RemoteFi deployment, if you are going to deploy RemoteFi, first of all, start testing early as much as possible, even on similar devices, similar architectures, just to get to know the, um, the equipment. Planning is key, obviously, for the architecture itself, for the deployment process, for everything along the way. And gradual field deployment really helps you find the problems faster, fixing them for the future and setting those processes um, you know, across your network, across your deployment workforce so that everything is going to be done in a similar kind of unified way. Invest in plant data quality. Make sure you know how you deploy your, your topology and collecting information about those nodes and amplifiers out there. Automate as much as possible, right? Automation and orchestration, as I mentioned, were really, uh, are really helpful tools for managing a distributed network. And the last and most important point is that good partnership helps. We, we've worked very closely with, with Stofa, this customer um, in this case, and we've had a lot of calls, a lot of weeklies, a lot of you know, ad hoc calls to solve problems, make sure once we find a problem, we solve it fast. So I can't really emphasize the importance of good partnership enough. So that's it from my side. Sorry for taking a little bit longer, uh, Brady, and uh, I'm going to stop uh, sharing now. I, I can answer any questions, or if you want to move to, to Asaf, that's really good. It's a fantastic presentation, and I, I think we had some good dialogue in, in between. Um, any questions from anyone before we move on to Asaf? Okay. Um, Asaf, you wanna, are you ready to uh, queue up your presentation? Sure, absolutely. Um, great presentation along queuing this up. Um, as soon as you have the present, there you go. It's starting to show up, and I'm getting your screen ready here. There you go. It's you're live. Go ahead, Hi. sir. Great. So, um, great presentation by Tal, and I think that uh, our presentations are complementary to each other in many ways, uh, and we, we we definitely agree on the benefits of DAA and remote fi. And, and I also want to thank uh, R.J. Walker. Uh, who uh, jointly uh, authored uh, the experience we had with uh, deploying remote find a centralized virtualized CMTS deployment. Um, and, and I can't emphasize the same thing uh, that Tal mentioned, which is having a great partnership with, uh, with an operator is uh, a key to having success. Um, uh, so we want to thank them as well. Uh, I don't want to labor on some of the points that Tal already made, so I'll kind of uh, go through some things and focus on others uh, as needed. Uh, obviously make it interactive if you can. I'm sure you won't withhold questions. So for us, uh, RemoteFi is a superset of things. In fact, we, you could use RemoteFi for centralized as well as DA architectures. It's a, it's a protocol that's out there. And we're looking at the combination of virtualization as well as RemoteFi as covering 
uh, different opportunities and footprints that are existing in cable networks together. So in this case, in our experience here, we're talking about a VCMTS deployment in the centralized HFC architecture. And we're gonna talk a little bit about the different areas of consideration, uh, not only remote five, but the compute location, networking, timing, uh, ease of expandability and operations. So if we kind of look at the architecture comparison where the top is a traditional integrated CCAP uh, architecture, and obviously this is simplified, uh, what we're talking about here in this deployment uh, is uh, leveraging the outdoor plant that exists already and then focusing on the change uh, between uh, on the virtualization of the CMTS core and then putting in a dense by shelf in different locations and getting the benefits uh, which were mentioned about remote fire, which is saving space, power and cooling and operational simplicity uh, by using the better tools available uh, in, in such a deployment. And just let's focus on that piece right there. So the pieces that, that are left in this architecture are the CCAP core, okay, which is connected through the SYN. Uh, the SYN is that converged interconnect network that we're, we were discussing earlier that connects the VCMTSs with the RPDs. I'm going to elaborate on the SYN. You'll see a more complicated SYN in a little bit from the deployment, uh, from the real-world experience that we have in this case. Uh, but there's a SYN, whether uh, it's connected very closely between the remote FI device and the virtual CMTS, or there are, there's uh, various hops of layer two and layer three devices. Uh, in this case, the remote FI device is a dense FI shelf. So there's a variety of different types of RPDs that exist out there, whether it's a dense FI shelf, or a small FI shelf that can exist in a remote location, or the classic remote FI node, uh, which, in, uh, which is for a DAA or, or a distributed access architecture deployment over digital fiber. So what we did here, uh, and this is really, you could see the VCMTS now pulls up in the diagram and the RPDs are, are lower down. Uh, remembering that the RPDs in these five shelves are generating the RF to their existing outdoor plant. And what we have over here is a multi-level uh, multi and different location set of SIN. So we're actually talking over layer three in this SIN. Uh, so there's some benefits in this deployment. And we also had to uh, use the, the network that was there. So we didn't have the opportunity necessarily to dictate all the different things around the SIN. Um, and you see the redundant PTP or grandmasters grand masters for timing of the 1588 portion of that as well connected into uh, what we call our CREs or core routing engines. They're basically uh, the fabric that uh, connects all the VCMTS servers between each other. Um, in this case, uh, we were able to expand from one secondary hub to another, and eventually you could see how you can connect over the same type of SYN, not only secondary dense remote FI shelves, but also remote FI nodes in a pure DAA deployment. So migrating from a, from a, a traditional HFC uh, outdoor plant environment to a pure DAA type of fiber deep type of deployment all by expanding uh, to the existing uh, network infrastructure and connecting back up into these uh, virtualized servers. Uh, th there's a lot of benefit in this network infrastructure and remote FISA technology here is being used uh, to connect between uh, the, the cores. In this case, it's the VCMTS cores and these remote FI devices. Uh, some of the deployment uh, details uh, that I wanted to share I just mentioned over here uh, about having the expandability. Uh, so I'll, I'll skip this slide and, and focus on some of the flexibilities that remote FI as a technology allow you to have coupled with, uh, with virtualization. First of all, remote FI will allow you to co-locate, uh, to have a variety of location possibilities. First of all, uh, you can do the classic uh, remote FI node in the outdoor. In this case, what we're doing is we're having five shelves and remote hubs, but you could have smaller remote five shelves that are not necessarily dense five shelves, dictated by the number of service groups and the size of these remote hubs. And then, of course, you can have a, a centralized deployment. And you can see that where the ARF is being generated and how it traverses. And, and the connectivity between, again, between the VCMTS core and these different five devices um, is, again, all these the standard-based remote five um, uh, protocols. I wanted to mention that uh, that this isn't uh, that everything is standards based here. So one of the great opportunities that we've had is the folks on this call with Cisco, Eris, and Harmonic. Actually, we have live deployments with each other, uh, interoperating with each other, not only at Cable Labs with but with real customers. So we all we all work and play together. 
and have live deployments with live customers with, um, you know, in, in our cases, uh, uh, different uh, cores operating with uh, Harmonic, uh, Cisco, and, and Eris uh, remote fi devices out in the real world. So uh, in terms of the maturity and the deployment, uh, you could see that there's been a lot of progress over the last year in terms of not only interop in, in a lab environment, but with real, with, with real subscribers uh, at the end of those devices. Yeah, um, I, th so. I think I think that's something that's really important for and should not be in any way, shape, or form. Well, it should be really promoted. The fact that you know Docs's compatibility and and that all these devices are following Docs's standard allows cable operators to take advantage of that and have the interoperability. So I I think that's a really important point that you're making, and and just to highlight that is important for everyone to realize. So. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, absolutely. I think the cable industry has done a fantastic job standardizing, uh, not only with remote fire, but other technologies. But here's an instance where as the maturity of the standards come to play uh, and we all kind of align ourselves to the same interpretations and interoperability of it, that it transitions into obviously from lab to field trials and then to uh, real world deployments. And, and the fact is where we are right now, we do have real subscribers and uh, real world deployments uh, with, um, obviously multi-vendor multi -vendor environments, um, which is um, a great achievement for the industry as a whole. I mentioned on the previous slide the, the, the variability and the uh, opportunity to move the RemoteFi device. And now from a virtualization point of view, uh, you could also use RemoteFi. Once you separate the hardware from the software uh, and you virtualize the software into servers, you, you can do co-location, uh, obviously have everything in one hub, uh, as well. So there's a spectrum of opportunity of where you can put the servers. Over here, you know, Tao was mentioning earlier the benefits of space and power reduction, and she actually had a very clear table of uh, power and, and space reduction. In our experience over here, uh, we were able to take 15 different hub sites worth of um, legacy CMTS gear and consolidate the data processing on the cores into one location. So from 15 sites to one site, Obviously, there's a space power benefit, but there's also a benefit for operational simplicity there um, and, and, and managing uh, the equipment um, at a single facility as opposed to across uh, multiple facilities as well. And obviously, orchestration and automation is a big part of that, how you aggregate the data and, and visualize that and monitor those equipment is, is also a simplification. I think that we all have the same perspective about planning and the network opportunities here. We've had experiences deploying over layer two or layer three. So uh, remote FI as a technology uh, gives the operator the opportunity to leverage their existing network. Obviously different planning and, and uh, different configurations, uh, but uh, remote FI is flexible enough to, to accommodate both types of uh, uh, SYN networks, whether it's a very small SYN with very minimal hops to multiple hops and, and more complicated layer three uh, networks. Um, our experience has been that layer three is also provides some level of configuration management and scale that provides flexibility and protection as well that the layer three approach kind of gives a, a few more benefits on top of a layer uh, versus a layer two. So we do have experiences, uh, successful experiences uh, with layer two. Uh, thanks to considerers, our traffic prioritization and capacity management across that part of the network. Uh, QoS is important to manage congestion uh, conditions Obviously, if there's excessive congestion, it will impact stable network operations. There have, it has to be a managed network. It can't be just, uh, uh, even with QoS, you, you, you cannot have the highest priority uh, sort of traffic, the control traffic uh, congested. You have, to, you have to be able to prioritize that and have that control traffic uh, make its way through at the right priority. In terms of timing, there's a spec around that, and there's definitely various ways of managing the timing. We have experience with aware and unaware networks and successful experiences doing that. Uh, the definition is, uh, is really uh, uh, well specced out in the uh, remote DTI version that also references IEEE 1588. But uh, to summarize it, uh, PTP aware requires that all the network devices be PTP capable and, and really uh, restricts the latency and gender specs to much uh, tighter numbers. And PDF, PTP unaware uh, it could be a place to start uh, for networks that don't have everything PTP capable. Um, the phase and offsets convergence times will be greater because of that, uh, some of the elements not being PTP aware, but they're not operationally significant in our experience. We think that they're, they're fast enough for, for uh, deploying 
uh, which uh, which is what we do in, in a lot of these cases. Uh, the, the the latency and jitter specs are not as tight, but but uh, they serve DOCSIS purposes uh, just fine. If you use timing as a as a service. And you need to have much tighter uh, requirements for, like, um, you could think of other network uh, requirements, um, and potentially the, those timing as a service uh, services that haven't been deployed yet uh, might require PTP aware networks. And there's a variety of high availability products out there that that um, provide reliability and and uh, best master clock algorithms out there uh, to have a robust uh, timing infrastructure operationally. Again, the combination of all these tools uh, that have been spec'd out give us better visibility, better experience, better uptime. And the thing that I wanted to mention is with any new technology, there's learnings and then operational practice. So of course there are challenges, but the more you, you, you learn and you make it into a routine, uh, that experience translates into actually higher uptime and better reliability, especially, okay, so these new tools uh, are, are Again, it takes some learning because it's new, but the fact is these new things are more powerful um, and provide uh, uh, much better capabilities that actually over time uh, give you this operational simplicity that, that we talked about. Uh, the experiences we've had in, in either upgrading uh, software or managing uh, different operational aspects has been a reduction for, for doing things that are have taken weeks. Our customers have told us have reduced their their service uh, maintenance windows or their operational testing from weeks and days to minutes. Um, so there's already some uh, great gains around that. Uh, this is my last slide. So my conclusion is, uh, for our experience has been that existing cable footprints obviously will continue to grow and improve. We all know the environment the cable industry lives in with uh, demanding broadband uh, growth year over year. Uh, but obviously they can't be overhauled overnight um, in most cases, right? Uh, so you need to find a migration path. And RemoteFi and VCMTS technologies improve this cable, this tool set um, and uh, it allows uh, the operators to basically, uh, based on their appetite, what they, they're willing to deploy and what migration path they choose. Uh, but we definitely have an architecture and a technology that's uh, available to deal with today's HFC architecture, but also paves a great way to uh, DAA and fiber deep deployments. I feel like I've, I've gone through these really quickly. I'm kind of uh, cognizant of the time <laughs> that we That's have. That's okay. But, I, uh, we, we got questions for you. I got questions already as soft. And uh, if you want to start stop on share or stop sharing, we can also see your face well, again. So I mean, one of my first questions for you is, and, and we also had this from um, uh, someone who had written in and said, hey, you know, we know SOS coming back. We have questions on latency. So one of mine is when you start deploying RFI devices, does that, does that automatically benefit latency or reduce latency, especially to gamers? Uh, like myself and other gamers and, and any service that really depends on reduced latency? The answer is it depends, right? Uh, I think that uh, uh, it depends on the choices we make. Uh, there's, first of all, um, the latency that people think about sometimes is between the, the scheduler that is typically in a, in a core and the uh, modem because of the request grant interval and DOCSIS scheduling. Um, there's other things, uh, there are other services that the DOCSIS allows us to use, like UGS service flows that are used typically for voice. Um, and there's also other uh, uh, activities going on in, in cable labs related to flexible MAC architecture as well as low latency doc, DOCSIS activities. So it depends on what type of service you're speaking about and, and um, what the, the latency is. Typically, uh, the propagation delay between the scheduler and the modem is not the only thing uh, and I think that, in fact, Cable Labs uh, released a report in their low latency DOCSIS um, uh, slides that they had, I think it was a Cable Labs webinar a week ago, uh, that showed that the, the dominant uh, factor in the latency impact to gaming was actually the, uh, the queuing, uh, the queuing, the type of traffic that is non-blocking or, block, or, or, or uh, the types of queuing of the traffic that occurs based on the traffic that um, is transmitted. So. Um, in this respect, RemoteFi doesn't deal with that. So their Cable Lab's conclusions were that uh, for low latency DOCSIS, it's kind of agnostic to RemoteFi or or um, or uh, flexible MAC uh, from that perspective, or or full duplex. 
Uh, so the experiences you'll have are similar. That's the conclusion. The, they're similar uh, latency uh, behavior as a traditional integrated uh, CCAP environment um, because the remote five device uh, does not have the scheduler in it. The, the scheduler itself uh, is in the uh, CMTS core um, and then the distance between the CMTS core and the modem uh, would dictate the, the propagation delay uh, for the latency measurement there. And the, the maps would have to traverse that propagation delay. Okay. I think the latency measurements are, are, and I've seen reports from, from Aris and Cisco as well around this, is around uh, six milliseconds for traditional DOCSIS networks. Second question I had for you, you had mentioned Remote 5 Shelf and then Remote 5, which is just like the, the device that replaces the fiber node. If I'm a cable operator, um, what would what would be the benefit or what's the trade-offs and benefits between a shelf and a, and a remote fine node? Well, I think the variety of physical platforms uh, gives the, the cable operator an opportunity to have these, uh, maybe at the uh, MTU, uh, maybe in a dense facility. Uh, remote fine nodes are typically outdoor devices uh, that can be deployed in node plus uh, three, four, node plus M environments as well as fiber deep. So it's an opportunity to use remote five protocols and technology and have the, uh, the opportunities to either deploy them outdoor or indoor. Um, it, remote five nodes that operate in a DA environment also dictate that you have an outdoor plant uh, that you go to digital fiber. If you want to use the same technology, um, let's say in the case that I just mentioned, uh, these five shelves are a distance away from the cores. And uh, we're using Again, the remote five protocols to connect between a single location with all the cores and these uh, dense five shelves, and then they're using their their existing uh, analog optics. They haven't changed their their outdoor plant at all. And then, if they choose, they can then augment their network with uh, DAA nodes. Let's call them uh, using the exact same protocols connected back over the same SIN. Uh, so it's just an opportunity of having indoor versus outdoor and the different form factors of having dense five shelves versus small form factor um, uh, remote five shelves. Uh, so it depends on the location in the hub. And, and basically, um, uh, those are the factors that would come into an operator's decision of whether they need a dense five shelf, smaller form factor five shelf, or remote five nodes. Okay. So, so you, you mentioned you know, using the shelf for hub collapsing, hub consolidation. I would uh, propose also that it could be used for, if you're doing node splits, uh, and it's an analog cable plant still, you could do service group expansion. So if you have a CMTS that's limited on RF ports, you could put a shelf right beside the CMTS, and the shelf has more RF ports. Every downstream RF port is basically a service group. So you could convert maybe uh, a line card on the CMTS that has an RF physical interface card to a, a digital physical interface card and physically wire it up right there to a shelf that happens to have, you know, a lot more service group. So it's really it's like you could do service group expansion, right? So that's like three scenarios. No, that's a, that's a great point because the connectivity between the cores and these uh, dense by shelves or by shelves or however we look at them is Ethernet. It's standard-based Ethernet running standard-based cable apps protocols. So the expansion ability there is, is exactly as you mentioned it. It's a it's another tool in the box. So very very I think this uh, fits well into your the beginning of our discussion here on the satellites that are providing the you know the, the services to rural areas. Remote five shelves or you know even notes would be a very good solution for those rural areas where you have a long you know long distance between the centralized head end and you need to reach there with digital fiber and then you can put just a remote five shelf inside a small town type of um, you know deployment and use that to potentially compete with those satellites or you know maybe the satellites will win eventually. So we we just have to we have to somehow get that technology to John so he can get a little better audio and video technology and that would help time. so much for next time for the next show. So we're, we're at the top of the hour. All those are fantastic presentations, wonderful material. Any final questions or anyone for um, anyone before we wrap this up? You know, I, I wanted to kind of say, you know, layer one of the OSI model, don't disregard it. Right. Um, so, and I call it the little things, patch panels, you know, SF, you mentioned, and, and, and everyone says this, we save power by going remote by, uh, getting rid of our transmit and receive, uh, our, our upstream downstream chipset and putting it out in the field remote by. 
some people would argue that you're now putting that power requirement in the field. The good news is we're getting rid of our analog and uh, transmitter receiver in the node, which could be hungry, power, power hungry. Uh, and there's an industry standard to keep the nodes under 160 watts. So with newer technology, with an upgrade, you know, doing digital fiber, uh, digital SFPs, uh, getting rid of the analog transmitter receiver, you know, we are limiting the power out in the node. We're not just transferring that power requirement from the head end to the node. So the nodes are still, you know, within a certain requirement, 160 watts. Even when we go FDX, we are strongly trying to keep that under 160 watts. So even with FDX and the uh, echo cancellation and that technology, uh, that's going to be a requirement as well. So that's kind of interesting there. Um, even though I am eliminating RF in the head end and no more splitting, combining, and all the RF cabling and all that, you are still splitting, combining digital, probably to a switch, to a router. So we still have to keep in mind the optical connectors, the switches. Those aren't free. Uh, obviously, an RF splitter is a lot cheaper than uh, an Ethernet switch and the ports that come along with it. So uh, looking at the rack space for the switches, it's tighter. Uh, it's not so bad. But everything has a little bit of cost difference, right? Everything is not free. Uh, I'm just a realist. <laughs> uh, breakout cables. If, if I upgrade uh, some type of digital physical interface card to a 100-gigi port, how do I wire that up if nothing else has 100 gig? Do I have to break it out? They do make QSFPs that go 100 gig to four tens. So I'm basically taking a 100 gig port and coming out with 40 gig. Uh, but maybe that's my limitation on my other equipment is 10 gig ports. Uh, correct fiber uh, and the SFP you're using. You know, I can't take a 20 kilometer SFP and uh, try to go 80 kilometers with it. And then in the same, the, the, the flip of that would be what if I'm in a lab and I get an 80-kilometer SFP, uh, a ZR versus an SR, short reach, uh, or LR for long reach, and I use that 80-kilometer SFP on on a uh, six-foot piece of fiber? You know, in a lab, you should be using, you know, multi-mode fiber with a short reach. Um, so, I mean, there's still a limitation there. You know, what I found interesting was the 20-kilometer, 40-kilometer, 80-kilometer SFPs, they don't really transmit any higher power, the receive side is more sensitive, which really surprised me as a physical layer guy. So the 80-kilometer SFP, transmit receive, the receive side is more, is more sensitive. So going with an 80-kilometer SFP, um, does it require an optical attenuator if it goes short reach? Really need to look at the specs of the uh, receive levels and, and what it's really transmitting. Uh, if you're going DWDM, uh, keep in mind the ITU grid, matching them up. Uh, understand single-mode fiber versus multi-mode fiber. I've even had people patch in fiber to a patch panel and not know the difference between an angle connector and a flat connector. And if they go into a patch panel, how do you know what's on the other side of that patch panel? Is it two angles coming together or is it an angle and a flat? So understanding, you know, the difference between the angle cuts as well. Um, and then you, then you run into also the node. Is it LC, SC? What type of fiber connector do I really need there? Is it, is it SFP? It's probably an SFP, but if I'm doing DWDM, it's probably LC or SC, uh, Sam Charlie versus you know, Larry Charlie. <laughs> so just some things to think about. Uh, one more thing, uh, yeah, redundancy. If I do a SIN, a converged interconnect network, you know, basically the, the digital fiber, and I'm do, taking two different paths to get there, what happens if I fail over from a 100-kilometer uh, link over to a 2,000, or let's say 1,500-kilometer link? That delay on the SIN, uh, it turns out it won't affect the modem's time offsets because the time offset is on the RF side, which that hasn't changed. But the digital link has changed significantly, which will affect the station maintenance, that delay we talked about in latency. Uh, so there are some things we can activate to have some dynamic latency measurement update a little bit faster so that it, it can reconverge faster and the modems don't go offline. So just some little things to think about. Anyone want to touch that? Can't touch this. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, I think that was a good wrap-up on the physical layer aspects. <laughs> so, any last comments? All right. I'll make, a comment. I, I'll make a quick comment. I just want to say that, you know, it's... Uh, 
it's been fun uh, to see the spec evolve and taking it uh, as an industry to the point where it is right now, where I, I feel like it's, uh, it's, it's as a standard, it's mature. And obviously we're having different experiences across the industry, uh, rolling it out in a variety of footprints and, and uh, with, a, with different operators. So uh, I think 2019 is, is a continuous continuation of 2018 with a lot of growth and opportunity and in particular with remote and, and, um, and virtualization. So, uh, you know, we're going from talking and presenting slides to uh, real-world experiences. Yeah, I love the I fact think. that we're talking about actually production and doing this live and, you know, actually right. rolling out product with customers. This is a, a wonderful step forward. Yeah, open so. RPD too, right? I mean, interoperability through cable labs, that's been significant. You know, mm -hmm. customers that might want to update the field to one vendor and the CNTS is a different vendor. So not, you know forcing someone to upgrade everything. Uh, you might stick with the CMTS and go with a different vendor for the RPD. Yeah, these are all good. All right, anything anything else? Tal, we haven't heard from you. I'll give you, last, I'll give you the last word, Tal. All right, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I have to say it's very exciting to see how we deploy these, uh, these new technologies. And I think um, I love doing this kind of paper and love doing this investigation because it's very important to also think about not only the technology, which is cool and innovative, but also how do we deploy it, right? Bringing it from the lab to real life to the field is, is very complex. And these are the types of uh, problems I love to solve. And I love the fact that the whole industry is now solving these kind of problems. How do we actually deploy those, make those operational, productize those? Um, I think we, we still have more work to do there and um, looking forward to see what happens next. Outstanding. Thank you. All right. I want to thank so much Tal, Asaf, and John from Eris, Harmonic, and Cisco for this fantastic presentation today. I, I think I got those all right somehow. <laughs> um, <laughs> this, was a, this was a fantastic episode. Our next episode is episode 40. Wait, 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 wait. What? What? Yeah. Eris? Oh, I'm like, no, I'm not going to bring that up. I'm not touching that. Just, just let it go. <laughs> let it, you had to go there, John. <laughs> so our next episode, our next episode, John, is episode 46, scheduled for March 15th. This will be a PNM roundtable, Proactive Network Maintenance Roundtable, with guest Larry Wilcott from Comcast, and he is also SCTE Member of the Year. Everyone remember that. And uh, also will be Jason Roop from uh, Cable Labs will be uh, with us. Um, so again, we always do our best to bring you just technical content from the industry, no marketing, no promotions, nothing like that. So if you like what you watch, please click the subscribe button on YouTube. Give us a thumbs up. We appreciate that. And uh, if you listen to us on our podcast, please subscribe on your podcast. You keep getting the latest updates. We'll catch you next time. Great having you listen to us. So long, all. Thanks again so much. Bye-bye. <laughs>